You're listening to Health Beyond Mormonism, an evidence-based health podcast for all the lazy learners who are learning to navigate life after Mormonism. I'm your host, Lindsay Ron, a personal trainer, nutritionist, health coach, and post-Mormon. Come with me as we re-examine everything you've ever been taught over the pulpit about nutrition, mental health, sexuality, and body autonomy, so that you can experience your best health beyond Mormonism. Now let's get into it. Before we get into today's episode, I wanted to take a second to invite you to play Healthy Boundaries Bingo inside the Health Beyond Mormonism community on Facebook, November 13th through 17th. For those coming out of Mormonism, I'm sure you're all too familiar with friends and family feeling like it's their righteous duty to quote unquote help you to get back on the straight and narrow. Healthy Boundaries Bingo will give you a safe space, a safe community, and lots of tools to make those interactions as safe and positive as possible, just in time for the holidays. Join the Health Beyond Mormonism community on Facebook to play. Today's episode with Becca Thomas-Jones is an important discussion about gender care and women's health. And I just want to give you a trigger warning that we do discuss some medical terminology around body parts abortion, and end-of-life care. These are really important discussions to be having, and we treat them with sensitivity. I also want to remind you that nothing in this episode, or really any of my podcast episodes, should be taken as health advice. This is meant to be informational and an open invitation to discuss any medical decisions with your own provider. Now let's get into today's episode. Hello, and welcome to Health Beyond Mormonism, an evidence-based health podcast for Mormon-flavored people who are looking to learn how to navigate their health beyond what they learned from the pulpit. Today, I have Becca here. Say hi, Becca. Hi. I'm so glad to have you on. Becca is a women's health expert. She is a nurse. And in fact, Becca, I'm just going to have you go ahead and introduce yourself. Tell me everything about me, who you are, where you live, what you do, what your hobbies are, what the name of your dog is or whatever. Yeah. My name's Becca Thomas. I'm a registered nurse. I live in Utah. Um, I was born in Seattle, but raised between Seattle and Southeast Alaska. Gosh, I've been a gender health nurse for six and a half years now. Yeah, six and a half years now. And I've worked in multiple states, moved here to Utah about 2019. I'm pursuing um, ongoing education. My favorite hobby is reading research, which is a very, very ADHD thing to have as your hobby. That's so awesome. That's kind of what led me into nursing and what has led me into you know, women's health and gendered health advocacy spaces, because understanding what the best evidence-based information is, and then realizing the gap between, you know, where we all start, you know, in our Mormon-flavored world that a lot of us grew up in, and then, you know, where the evidence shows that what we need to understand to be our best, healthiest self. Mm-hmm. We chatted a little bit before we started and we threw around some terms, you know, gender health or women's health. Like, is there a difference between those two terms? No, um, one's just more inclusive. We used to call it women's health. And then we realized that not everyone who needs the care of an OBGYN 
or a nurse practitioner or, you know, someone who specializes in vulvas and vaginas and uteruses is going to be a woman. And so we've moved forward almost universally to what's called gender health. And so that also includes people who present as male or people who would need a urologist or a proctologist, things like that. Those aren't my specialities. I, I don't generally deal with um, penises and prostates and things. Um, can I? Sure. But really my expertise is in uteruses and vaginas and vulvas and you know, lifespan issues, including preconception, conception, menopause, all of those kinds of things. I love it. While we're on the topic of terminology, do you know the book Come As You Are? You know, I've heard so many wonderful things about it. I have not read it much to my chagrin. I really should because I have heard nothing but rave reviews. I understand that it includes correct terminology. I understand that it does a lot of really wonderful educational things. And I really should read it, but I just have not had a chance in this moment of my life. Well, you know, maybe for somebody like you, like maybe it would be boring. This is like old hat, but you know, for me and actually a lot of my, you know, Mormon friends, ex-Mormon friends, like it, it's like super eye-opening. But one of the points that she made was that they, they did some kind of, they did some kind of poll somewhere, some study and uh, asking women if they know the proper terminology for their parts. And it turned out that most women don't and that people are misidentifying the name vagina for the entire package down there. Can you run us through like what the names of all the places are? <laughs> because, you know, it's it's not just like a penis. You know, I feel like, right. you know, because there's women's no parts are on the inside. You don't there's see the them. shaft of the penis. There's right there. You know, there's the frenulum. Yes, absolutely happy to. So for people who have vulvas, the general term for all the outside parts of the female anatomy is vulva. That includes both your labia majora and minora. Those are the lips that everyone talks about. And they're, you know, there's two sets. There's the outer set, which is the majora. And then there's the inner set that's the minora. And okay. then you have the outer part that is covered by those. At the top is the, you know, the clitoral head with the clitoral hood, which is just less than 10% of the entire clitoris need to be very clear about that that there's so much more to that anatomy than people realize below that is going to be a small opening for your urethra where you're that's connected up to your bladder that's where your urine is going to come out and then below that will be the vaginal enteroidus which is the medical term which just means vaginal opening and then within that vaginal opening is the vagina and there are actually multiple parts to the vagina. So there's that vaginal enteroidus. There is a anterior fornix. Just back from there will be your cervix, which leads up to your uterus. And then there'll be a posterior fornix. 
And the fornixes are mostly there during an unaroused state, but in an aroused state, vagina lengthens and those tend to more disappear. And then, you know, to accommodate other things, many different things. I don't know why the word incision comes to mind. <laughs> it's not the right word. <laughs> not incision. We, we hopefully never do any incisions. We don't... <laughs> Oh, so and yeah. then just you know, just back from the vagina, you know, there's an area between the vagina and the anus that can be very important, especially during you know pre preconception, conception, childbirth times. So so much about that area, and then of course you have your anus, and and on backwards. But really, anything that's on the outside is your vulva. Mm-hmm. And anything on the inside is your vagina. And just even knowing that you're going to be 30 times ahead of most people. And there are so many great, you know, I highly recommend that almost everyone go look at an anatomy book. I promise it's fine. You can go look at an anatomy book. You can know the words for your parts because frankly, it's your body. You're the owner. You need an owner's manual. You need to understand what those words are so that you can best convey to your healthcare provider where the problem is, what's different, what changed, where exactly that is, it makes the job of getting the care that you need so much easier. And Mm -hmm. it really can help you, you know, to be empowered. I, you know, my understanding of Come As You Are is that it is very comprehensive on the anatomy. And I love that. Hopefully they've included the entirety of the clitoris, including the clitoral body. Mm-hmm. Um, they, they have line drawings of like what's going on, like underneath the skin and how it, I don't remember the terminology, but like it splits apart into the two. Yes. Into the two bulbs. Yes. Wonderful. Great. Love that because everyone deserves to know their anatomy. Mm-hmm. And they also go into, this was really interesting and I think important to understand as we're talking about like gender and sometimes people changing gender surgically or whatever but the fact that the women's parts and the men's parts have like their um what do you call it their their buddy their twin like everyone's the same in embryo and oh, then yeah. all oh, the parts all the same parts they just look right. they just grow to different sizes and do different things but it's all the same parts the labia become the scrotum, the, you know, the ovaries drop down, become testes. It's all the same part. The, the clitoris would become the penile shaft. They're just mirrors. They, you know, through a mirror darkly as it were. Right. And that's how, when people, you know, when people do change gender and they decide to, you know, do things surgically, they actually can do things, um, and use their own natural parts and turn them into something that's more like what they need them to be. Absolutely. And some of the surgeries are, have been gone, been going on longer than others. Some of them are more advanced than others, but I've seen excellent surgical outcomes in that way. And watching patients go from someone who feels very insecure in their own body and very distressed and watching them go on to get to live a very full life and just to be so 
settled within themselves is a beautiful thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I love that so much. And I feel like, yeah, I mean, this, this is not what this episode is going to be. I'm like, we're not talking specifically about transgender folks, but I, I, I do think it's important to sort of, um, it, because it's a big topic right now. And, you know, I think that it's important to understand that, you know, when it comes to like body autonomy and like as a coach, as my values and my branding, like your autonomy, when it comes to your own body is like the number one, most important component of your overall health. And when people, you know, when people like decide that they need to change their gender, that's their body and they get to decide it. And that is not for everybody else to have and express opinions about. And I think that is so very important for their safety and their well-being, knowing that, you know, I it's it's not for me to guide somebody through that process. Well, in, in healthcare, you know, we've been very paternalistic in the past, and we're definitely trying to move away from that more and more. But gender-affirming care isn't just for trans people. I've received gender-affirming care. I was able to receive a surgery that reduced the size of my breasts because they were uncomfortable. They made me have pain on a daily basis. And receiving that gender-affirming care was life-changing. It allowed me to not have back pain. It allowed me to preserve my mobility long-term. Gender-affirming care is the boob job, the tummy tuck, the you know, that is all gender affirming care. And what someone chooses to do with their body is no one else's business. That is between them, hopefully a therapist, and, you know, hopefully their surgeon or, the, you know, their doctor who they've created a good relationship with. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I love that. And thank you for, you know, thank you for being open about these things. Like, I feel like just, there are a lot of people who need to feel like that there are understanding healthcare practitioners that exist. And it's great to know that you're one of them. Well, one of the classes that you take in nursing school is on ethics. And it is very important that while I may have very deeply held beliefs, while I may have very, you know, well-considered rational beliefs, that has nothing to do with my patient. That's mine. That's for me to decide on my life. That is not for me to decide about what they should or shouldn't do. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think we're all very glad that healthcare providers and nurses and, you know, aren't making those decisions for people and that it's a collaborative effort that we do together to get the best outcomes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's fantastic. Um, okay. So, Let's go back to one of the points that I wanted to ask you. Um, you're a researcher. You do lots and lots of research. Um, something that we come up on with people, you know, trying to learn how to navigate their health and they're doing their own research. Um, how does one who is not professionally trained as a researcher, how does one find the best sources and consume them? 
That Mm. is very difficult at times, even for someone who is trained in how to read the research. Gosh, there are still things that I don't know. And the more I learn, the dumber I feel sometimes. And so for anyone who's just starting out on this, um, you're going to feel real smart at first. And you're going to feel like, well, I read this research. So that's absolutely what it is. And as you learn more, you're going to find out, oh, there is bias. There's who's paying for the study. How big was the study? What kind of study design was it? The study design impacts its relevance, its ability to be generalized to a population or its usefulness to individual outcomes. And so (laughs) I, you know, the first things that I recommend is .edu sites and .gov sites. You know, if you're going to be on the internet, those are the best because those are reviewed by people who have PhDs in research. They know how to look out for bias. They know how to uh, adjust for sample size. They know how to really do that work and to give the general population the information that is applicable to them that can be generalized. But at the end of the day, it's really about your relationship with your healthcare team. You mm-hmm. need to trust your healthcare team. And if you don't, get a new healthcare team. Mm-hmm. You have got to be so honest and so vulnerable with your healthcare team. And that's sometimes really hard because they cannot ethically be as vulnerable with you. And as humans, we like to share where we have been shared with. And in Mm -hmm. a healthcare setting, that wouldn't be appropriate because then it would be us making it about ourselves instead of making it about you, the patient. And so really, it really is about that bond though. If there's a lot of research that shows that your bond with your healthcare provider actually is determinative of your outcomes. So the better the coalition between patient and provider, patient, nurse, patient, doctor, patient, nurse, practitioner, whatever, the better your health outcomes are going to be. And it's even a small difference. It is like 70, 75% like difference in outcomes. It is shocking how much that therapeutic alliance matters. That is amazing. What, so what do people do or what can patients do who need medical support um and they they can't find a provider that they trust like for instance i would say a lot of times um people coming from the obese population you know the 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 medically obese population mm-hmm. and that's like the classic like doctors it, they they've been through so many abusive doctors socially acceptable bias Right. Well, they're all using the BMI to tell these people that like, well, you just need to eat right and (laughs) exercise more. And, you know, the whole thing is like, it's ridiculous. There is something medically going on that needs to be addressed. This is a person who needs help. And yet, and, and between, you know, and part of the problem also is that a lot of people don't have a lot of choices in who they can go to for their medical provider. Absolutely. That choice is determined by who you work for or, you know, by an insurance company, you don't get to choose. It's 
you you are told you get to choose, but you don't really get that choice. And that is a disadvantage of the system in the US. Outside the US, there is a lot more choice. Inside the US, there really, really isn't. And sometimes you don't get to choose. There's a couple things, you know, as someone who has struggled with weight and obesity most of my adult life, this is something that has impacted me and impacted my health care. There's a couple things that I've done that are evidence-based that have helped with that. One, I speak about the bias explicitly with my provider. So oh, like I, right from the beginning? Yeah. I see a family medicine doctor and he is fantastic. I'm very lucky. Mm-hmm. However, I have not always been so lucky and I've been in an obese female body most of my adult life. And one of the things that I've learned that has been helpful is just to be like, hey, I know I'm in an obese body. I know that I am female presenting. I know that there is going to be an implicit bias here about you know, my health. And I know you will not mean to bring that into this space. I just want you to know that I am also aware of that. And I'm going to give you as, you know, grace about it. As long as you can give me grace about, you know, as I work through this, you know, Mm -hmm. as we work on my health as a team. Yeah. And it is amazing how much you can get people to come onto your level just by starting the conversation with the elephant right out there. Yeah. Like, well, especially if you have some kind of chronic disease, most doctors aren't going to know a lot about your chronic disease that you have spent years learning about because it impacts your life and you need to be healthy and you Mm -hmm. need to be functional. And yes, doctors have egos that need to be sometimes delicately managed. And frankly, they have gone through so much school to be told that they know nothing is insulting. It absolutely is insulting. And there's Mm -hmm. better ways to have that conversation. For sure. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. But when it comes to stuff like obesity and you're getting care for obesity, like, yes, there are the things that like a coach like me can deal with, you know, like I can help you implement those lifestyle changes. Like that's actually what all my certifications are in. Like I'm a personal trainer and a nutritionist and behavior change coach and all this stuff. But like at some point you are going to need actual medical care. Absolutely. And what we are finding, and this is very cutting edge research. This is the last 10 years, some of it, the last two years, And what you can guarantee pretty much in healthcare is unless something is over 15 years old, it is not going to be common knowledge or commonly adapted and accepted into the healthcare realm. So we've had medications like Wagovi and Exempic for 10 years. These are not new. These are Mm -hmm. old. But we didn't start taking obesity as a chronic illness seriously until about five years ago. Why? Because all the reasons we just, in healthcare, we even research how long it takes us to go from knowing the right way to do something to implementing it. And the average is 15 years. And yeah. that sucks. I actually am transitioning into a role with my current position where I'm going to be 
narrowing that gap as much as we can. That is one of my goals in that role is that, hey, we know better. We should be doing better within a year, not 15 years. Yeah. And it's really exciting, but gosh, I am expecting a lot of pushback and that's normal. And that's very, very normal. And so you as the patient, be patient. (laughs) And that sucks and it sucks and I'm sorry. And I wish we as healthcare providers could do better and we can't, and I'm sorry. And please remember that we're human. And I think there's been some of that lost in the last few years, realizing how human we are as people, because the last few years broke a lot of us. Yeah. And so I know wait times are long and I know that our biases come out and I know that we are snarky and sarcastic and have really dark humor right now. And that's a way that I see a lot of my colleagues just staying in healthcare instead of leaving because frankly, we're not paid enough. Well, and I know that. Right. And, and like, it's a classic thing in the healthcare system where the, the health of the healthcare providers is not the top goal. Like these things with their like in, overworking, not enough yeah, sleep. Yeah. In most healthcare organizations. That is absolutely true. I'm very lucky right now. I get to work for a place that has put my health and has put my colleagues' health as a high priority. And that I can't imagine what that would have looked like in a different organization during the same time period. I don't think I would be a nurse right now, honestly, as it is, I, you know, I'm still recovering from PTSD from COVID-19 um, the things that I saw and heard and, and the primary and secondary trauma is very real. And I'm lucky in so many ways, but I know as a nurse that my patients have that same primary and secondary trauma in a lot of ways they saw and heard and felt and dealt with medical things that they were not trained to see Mm -hmm. or hear or deal with. And I think that is something that really should be talked about more. And it's definitely something that I bring up with patients, especially anyone who will report to me, oh my goodness, I saw, felt, you know, dealt with this thing. It was so scary. And I'm like, yeah, I'm trained to deal with that. And it was scary for me too. Mm -hmm. It's important to be able to acknowledge when you have feelings. Yes. Well, see the humanity you know, yeah. Am I an expert? Sure. As, as much as that, I feel like that is possible because my goodness, um, the Dunning-Kruger effect has been very real for me. And the more I've learned, the stupider I feel. And <laughs> Which is it's so funny. Probably in the last three years that I've really started to feel more confident and more like, yeah, no, I know what I'm talking about. It's okay. Mm-hmm. I can speak to this. Oh, man. No, I hear you. No, when I was a new coach, I was like, I know everything. And I look back on, I I just, I, I feel bad for some of my original clients. <laughs> <laughs> the hot takes that we all had as, as, as people who had just learned a thing, were they completely wrong? No, but was there some nuance there that, that may have been helpful? 
helpful. Oh, yes, absolutely. Oh. Well, and I feel like that's the thing when you're you're dealing with people's health is that like the name of the game is nuance. Everything is yes. nuanced. Like if someone asks you a question and you know about their health and they want like a yes or no answer, I don't know if any good, you know, medical professional or wellness professional should just be answering them yes or no. Like I feel like most of the these questions are a can yeah. of worms. The more you know, the more you're like mostly yes. Or yes. Mostly no. Well, it really depends on what your goal is here. And right. <laughs> this is why that therapeutic alliance with you and your doctor, your nurse midwife, your physician's assistant, the nurse that's, you know, caring for you, the medical assistant that's helping out. That's so important. If you don't feel heard say I don't feel hurt mm -hmm. most doctors now most people in the medical field now are being trained that when someone in front of them says I don't feel hurt to really take the time and go back and hear them now do we always have time for that given the medical system no and that's horrible and gosh we need to change it but more and more training is about really listening and how important that is to healing and what the difference is between, you know, being heard and not being heard on health outcomes. It's wild how mm -hmm. much just being real with each other makes a difference. And so, you know, get really real with the people you're working with on your health. The more real you get, you are going to find that your outcomes get much, much better. And I know it's scary and I know it's so vulnerable. I recently had this conversation with my primary care provider, um, gosh, about a year ago, I was like, okay, I know I have this condition. I know it impacts my metabolism. I am finally ready to address it with medications. And thank you for being patient with me while I wasn't. And I got placed on medications that are 40 years old. And mm -hmm. guess what? I started losing weight. Because well, I well, well. No figure. And, you know, I'm lucky. My provider never made me feel bad about being obese. Not once. Mm -hmm. He talked about my blood pressure. And he talked about my A1C and he's like, let me know if, when, you know, you are ready. And I trust that you as someone who knows about healthcare will let me know. Now it's a little different when you have a patient, when you have someone you're caring for who doesn't know as much about healthcare, who doesn't know how to access the system, we are probably going to bring up that conversation a lot more often because we're concerned that you won't know how to get that care. You won't know how to access it. The, mm -hmm. There is this great research uh, that was done out of Seattle um, that actually I'm citing in, in, in one of the papers that I'm writing right now about the barriers to care and education of the populace being one of them. Your average person listening to this podcast has an eighth grade understanding of medicine and healthcare easily or less or less that's the average so we have to assume you know almost nothing 
we have to assume you don't know that obesity is tied to high blood pressure, to a higher A1C, to all these other things that are going to cause you problems in your 40s, 50s, sometimes in your 30s. We have to assume you know nothing because our education system does not prepare you to mm -hmm. know something about your healthcare. And I apologize if we say the same thing a million times. And one of the things that you can do as the patient is go, I, you know, kind of rephrase what they said and be like, I fully understand and accept that these are all true things. This is what I need to focus on today. I promise we will address those when I'm ready. And just that kind of very bare, honest conversation makes such a difference because then your provider knows, mm -hmm. you know, smoking. Oh my goodness. The times people do not want to be told to stop smoking. Fair. They know it's bad for them, but we have to assume they don't because if we miss it and they didn't know that is unethical, that is on us as the person who spent the time in the education. Right. Well, and that makes a lot of sense. I think that, um, I think that for people who have experienced like, you know, abusive doctors or whatever, and they're coming in oh, and they're talking about their weight and they come in and they get a new doctor and the new doctor sure. points out their BMI on the chart and they, and if you'll just them, lose 10 pounds, you won't be in pain anymore. Oh my goodness. Mm -hmm. Yep. And if your doctor says that to you, you need to explicitly, if you can, in that moment, if you feel safe enough, be like, I understand you are concerned about my weight. Could you please explain to me how my weight relates directly to this thing I'm complaining about? And if they can't make that connection, they're just being an asshole. Right. Well, it's, it's the easy, it's the easy diagnosis, I guess. And I, I don't mean to like yeah. bash on doctors and things. Yeah. I don't think it's easy. I think <laughs> it's, there's nothing I can do about it. Throw up my hands diagnosis. And then I don't have to address anything else, which, you know, um, when you only get 15 minutes, when you're only reimbursed for 15 minutes of time, yeah, mm -hmm. I kind of get it. On the same side, is that what we went into healthcare to do? No. And it's a little unethical and let, right. you know, and so there, there's a big pushback happening now of let's find a way to get reimbursed to, so that we can, you know, um, pay off our student loans because that needs to happen. Mm -hmm. And still really care for the people in front of us and how do we do that and that that is something that is talked about a lot in the last six months in healthcare. I do not know a single clinic or organization that isn't talking about that right now mm -hmm. reimbursements got cut again oh geez this mm -hmm. is awful well a family doctor we've lost over a hundred primary care physicians because they can make more money as a UPS driver. That's awful. That's really, really awful. How do you pay off $200,000, $250,000 of student loans on less than a UPS driver? It's, it's so flipped upside down. It shouldn't so be. I honor anyone who's willing to become a doctor right now and go into family medicine because I'm like, oh, oh my God. Oh, oh my God. Why are you crazy? You will right. never get out of debt. 
I've seen lately a trend too, as, uh, as like coaching becomes more popular and coaching is one of these interesting things where you have professional certifications and stuff, but you don't have like licenses. And so you, there's all kinds of different coaches and like, you don't even have to be certified for, yeah, you know, we have being a coach. relationship with coaches in the healthcare field. We really do because some are amazing and some stay in their lane and some are very, so, so helpful to our patients in achieving their health goals. Mm-hmm. Coaches, you know, it's a doula, a, a, you know, someone who helps during birth is a form of coaching and gosh, generally speaking, a doula helps reduce the amount of procedures or medicalization of birth. They help reduce complications. Generally, there are better outcomes. All the research, you know, supports us having doulas. You know, given my druthers, we would have a doula at every single birth. Right. However, not all doulas are fantastic. And some of them have an ax to grind and bring that into the birth room and make it about them instead of about what's happening now. And that's hard. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, it's a love-hate relationship. We need coaches. We need doulas. We need these people who can help bridge that gap to lower the barrier to good health. Right. Because the patient doesn't really get that much face-to-face time with their provider. Mm -mm. Because like what you were saying before, like they get 15 minutes and that's it. Well, now what? Like they need more support than that. And it it makes a lot of sense to me to have a structure where you have, like you have your your doctor and then you have all the nurses and people and then you have maybe like your dietitian the registered dietitian and then they have several certified coaches you know like that makes so much sense because you can afford like the insurance doesn't pay for like a nutrition coach right (laughs) but it is so much cheaper to go see a nutrition coach once a week for six months while you are under like the care of a dietitian or while you are on your weight loss medication or whatever, because like what we've seen, the weight loss medication doesn't do it alone. No. Oh, absolutely not. You can take Wigovi and lose zero pounds. Right. And then what do you do once you get off the pill? You need to be holistic. And this is, you know, why I went into nursing versus becoming a medical doctor, because I wanted to have more time with the patient. I spend way more time with the patients than any doctor or nurse practitioner ever gets to. I Mm -hmm. love that about my role. I love, I know them. I know their pets. I know their family. We talk, we, you know, that's what I loved about nursing. But again, one of the downsides is, you know, yes, I'm licensed. I'm a professional, but gosh, there are some unethical nurses out there. There are unethical mm-hmm. doctors. Please be careful. Please just as much as you can. I know it's hard to doctor shop and nurse shop and you know get the right team together. It is worth your time. And especially with how transient our communities have become, it gets really hard. I'm like, I moved in 2019. Mm-hmm. I moved literally months before the pandemic. I came to Utah and then... <laughs> had to find my team while on lockdown wow that's fun um challenging is definitely the word I'd put with it it was definitely challenging 
And so, and that's for someone who knows how to use and run and, you know, get through the system. So, you know, definitely it's a lot of self-advocacy. It shouldn't have to be, but it is. And the more you educate yourself about the healthcare system, you know, that helps lower those, those barriers. Another big thing is a lot of places have nurse lines now. You oh, can yeah. call your insurance company and a lot of them have nurse lines or a lot of the clinics or a lot of the hospitals, they have nurse lines now, call it, use it. It's a great resource. It's a great way to know, Hey, here are my symptoms. What should I do? Mm-hmm. I love those resources because it lowers barriers to care. It lets you know how urgently you need to be seen because some things can wait and some things can't. And then, you know, where you can be seen, where is a good spot? And, you know, most people, if they get stung by a bee, they're like, well, do I go to an urgent care or do I go to an ER? The, the answer to that, unless you are highly allergic to bees or allergic to bees is an urgent mm-hmm. care. But if you step on a beehive, <laughs> right? And there is right. really cheeky banners, uh, billboards that some healthcare system did, I think in Florida, I'm not sure. That was great. Like, it was so great. Like, stung by bee, urgent care. Stepped on a hive of bees, emergency room. Um, That is so smart. Yeah, got a splinter in your hand, urgent care if you can't take care of it at home. Uh, Got a splinter in your eye, the emergency room, right? And I I Mm -hmm. love this. I I would love to see more of that kind of education. And there's some research or there are some resources around that, but gosh, those nurse lines are fantastic. Find one. Sometimes they're run by states. Find them. Um, here in Utah, there's a couple different ones, but that's not helpful if you don't live in Utah. So nurse lines are a great resource to help kind of lowering those barriers to care and helping you kind of navigate the system from an insider. Think of, think of your nurse as the insider as you know, the person who can get you backstage tickets that you shouldn't be able to get to or whatever, that that is of the nurse. I love that because there's all kinds of situations where you don't know, like I called, I got, I got hit in the side of the head with the basketball. (laughs) My, we were outside playing basketball and I heard this sound when I got hit in the side of the head with the basketball. And then I was like, I kept trying to play, but I felt like my balance was a little bit off Uh and like, I didn't even get that hard. And then I sat down on the curb because I just felt really tired and I was going to look at my phone and I pulled out my phone and I was looking at my phone, but I couldn't read the words on the phone. It was really weird. I had to like really, really focus to read the words on my phone. And then my eyes, my eyes were just like closing for no reason. Like I wasn't tired. And I was like, I do not have a concussion. I just only got hit in the side of the head with the basketball. I only got a concussion, but we called the phone doctor. And I was like, I got hit in the side of the head by a basketball. I feel weird. And I told him all my symptoms and he's like, yep, that's a concussion. (laughs) I was like, oh, (laughs) what do I do? And he's like, well, honestly, like Unless, you know, unless there's some, something big happening, like really all you do is you hang out and he told me cognitive rest. So I couldn't, I wasn't allowed to watch TV or read or anything, just 
don't listen to music, just sleep. And I was yes. like, oh, that actually sounds awesome. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, I'm an adult here and I'm kind of wishing that doctors would prescribe cognitive rest more often. Like put your dang phone away and just <laughs> don't do anything for a while. But anyway, well, yeah, like the phone resource, because on our insurance, there's like a phone number on the insurance card that you're supposed to call for like the phone. Yeah. Nurse. And like, it, like easy peasy, just, you know, I didn't want to go to the ER if I was like making up the thing. I, re- I do always recommend with any kind of concussion, just getting a neurological check from some kind of provider. Well, I did, but you know, I had to make an appointment and come back like in a day or two, you know, it, it, it wasn't, you know, and they, they rec- there's like a scale they use like on a one to 10, all your symptoms oh, yeah, and they're yeah. like, okay, well, it doesn't sound like you need to go into the ER right now. You should make an appointment and go. Yeah. And, you know, so I did a few days later and it was fine, but, um, it was really great to have that resource so that I could just call the right? number on my, and on my insurance card. How much money in hospital bills that were unnecessary. And that's why I love those resource lines. They have been, they've been proven over a long time to, you know, reduce that, those barriers to care, lower costs, lower ER, you know, inappropriate or unnecessary ER use. Mm-hmm. I, I really think that they are a great thing. And, you know, I highly recommend that everyone kind of get familiar with where they can call, where they can get that kind of, kind of advice. And when you get the advice, please listen to it. <laughs> I know that they are going to err on the side of caution and they're going to send people to the ER when there's any kind of question. That's not a bad thing. Mm-hmm. It's okay. It's all resources. And obviously there's some things that you know right away. Like if your arm is broken and your bone is sticking out of your skin, like, yeah, the ER. go to the ER. <laughs> or now, if you're having trouble simple, breathing or. Yeah. Now a simple broken bone where nothing looks deformed, nothing's out of place. That's an urgent care. Mm-hmm. But if it's anything more complicated than that, that's, an, you know, that's, a, but again, there are these great resources that we're trying to use. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the things that I've seen since I've moved here to Utah, besides, you know, most people not having proper terminology for all of their parts, which mm-hmm. gosh, please spend the time it is worth it to spend the it's time. your it's your own body yeah you should know those parts of your own body yeah <laughs> I, I highly recommend it and and you know there's just such great power that comes in being able to name something names have power so you can't just go to the OB appointment complaining about your your front butt or your cooch. I mean, you can. Oh, oh, you absolutely can. We will figure it out. But gosh, you will find that you get care quicker, that your symptoms go away better and quicker if you have the language. If you mm-hmm. just spend a minute learning the language, learning the names for the parts. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And speaking of that, uh, like you are in Utah now, right? Yeah. And you're serving lots and lots of people's coming out of the church in one way or another, or even just being in the society, speaking the language of Mormonism. So what, what do you notice there with women's health? There's a lot of misunderstanding around terminology. There are things that we say in healthcare 
that means something very different for people not in healthcare. You know, um, one of the things that a lot of us have gone to is gender care versus women's care, birthing people versus, you know, moms, chest mm-hmm. versus breastfeeding. And, you know, oh, woke agenda. I've, I've heard all the things. I've heard people be like, oh, thank you so much. And I've heard people be really angry. And once we know your preference, we're going to use your preferred language. But mm-hmm. we can't know everyone's preference because we just met you. And so we're going to use the most inclusive language possible at first. And if you want to say, oh yeah, I'm a mom, I'm a first time mom and I'm breastfeeding. Those are the words we're going to use because we know those are accurate for you, but they may not be accurate for the next person. I've been honored to care for a birthing person who was male and who was delivering a child for their family. And it was beautiful. And, you know, they had a uterus and a cervix and, you know, we needed to do a lot of care, but it was wonderful. I feel honored that anyone trusts me to be in that space. The birth Mm -hmm. space, the healthcare space is a sacred space. And I am a third generation gender health nurse. So I come from, you know, I grew up with a mother who did this and a grandmother who did this. And so that idea of that being a very sacred, special place to be very careful in, to be very mindful in, I happened long before I have concrete memories of it. And so just know that in that space, anyone, you know, your nurses are going to hold that secret. They, we are going to hold that as your space because it is your space. I know it doesn't feel like your space at first, but it really, really is. So mm-hmm. please know that we are going to say terminology. If there's anything you don't understand, if there's anything that you're like, what, what, like, I've cared for people going through pregnancy loss. And I did a lot of that because of some of my background, because of some of my personal experience with pregnancy loss, I was able to better be there for people experiencing pregnancy loss in a way that was authentic. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I take breaks from it because that's hard, but Pregnancy loss isn't a medical term. The term is abortion. Right. Whether that's on purpose or not, or what the reason behind it. Whether it's induced or spontaneous. And induced doesn't mean bad. It just means we as medical providers have intervened in some way. And spontaneous doesn't mean natural or good. Hmm. In healthcare, we use very morally neutral words because it is not our place to stand in judgment on anyone you do drugs we don't care tell us what they are so that we pick medications that work with it and that aren't going to kill you we do not care that you are homeless and riddled with lice and bed bugs we don't care let us know 
know that we can care for you. We care about you, not about your politics, your ethics, your where you live, who you are. We swore not to care about those things. Mm-hmm. And so please, you know, be honest, be forthright, be transparent, be vulnerable, and know that we will honor that in you. We will, you know, maybe not every day, there are days, but we will keep that away from you because that's not fair. So, you know, the word abortion just means an end of a pregnancy. Technically, a delivery at full term of a viable, healthy baby where you go on to parent or whatever, that's mm-hmm. technically an abortion. Well, technically you're terminating the pregnancy. The, ter- the termination just means ending. It doesn't mean killing. It just means ending. It's right. end of the pregnancy. We always joked when it, whenever I was pregnant, we always joked about how like when the due date came that it was, it was a terminal illness. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it always really bothered me, but it's actually really funny. <laughs> it's funny because it's a play on the medical words. Um, mm-hmm. You know, there are a lot of laws that I, as a nurse, have to be very aware of so that I follow them because that, you know, I don't want to go to jail for doing my job. That That is no part of what I want to do. But you are assisting with births and with care when these when these births don't work out. Yes, absolutely. And as a nurse, you have two choices. Your choice is to never, ever deal with anything that isn't going to be a what we expect to be a live birth mm-hmm. or to deal with all of it. Mm-hmm. So either you get to be there on the worst days of their lives or you don't. You are either there doing abortion care or not. Whether it's elective, induced, spontaneous, medicated, doesn't matter. You either are or you are not. And given the care that I was given during my pregnancy loss, I felt very called into that space. I felt very strongly that it was more important that I hold the hand of everybody than nobody. And that's the Mm -hmm. only choice you get in healthcare. You don't get to choose. Well, this one, you know, we don't know all the circumstances. We can't know all their circumstances. And so you either do or you don't in healthcare. And I chose to, and in, you know, being Mormon flavored, that has made me worry for many, many years about losing my, you know, membership in the church because In the handbook, it says you cannot promote, support, a bunch of other words, abortion. I'm like, well. But they're not using the word abortion in the medical sense either. No, they're not. They're absolutely not. Many of the things that I did, they would say that's not abortion, but it is. Mm -hmm. The beautiful family that I cared for that was you know, 20 weeks along when they had their anatomy scan and they found out that their fetus was not compatible with life. It was not viable. The, mm-hmm. And every day a pregnant person is pregnant, their health and their life is at risk. People really underestimate how risky pregnancy and birth is. Mm-hmm. 
And unless you live in those spaces, you just, all you see are the good outcomes. You don't see all the bad income outcomes because people don't talk about it. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I cared for that family while they said goodbye to a very wanted, very loved pregnancy that was not going to end in a baby. It was, there was no possible way. Mm -hmm. And technically that was elective and it was induced and it was an abortion. Right. And I, I can't imagine how painful and how much grief that that family must've felt. And, you know, and I, I can't imagine the grief and pain that anybody must feel if they need, if they're put in the situation where they would even need to consider the choice. Yeah. Like this is, I don't, I don't believe people are going around having abortions willy nilly just for funsies. No, I have never, ever met anyone at any stage. I've never met anyone who uses it as contraception, which it wouldn't be because contraception has a different meaning. (laughs) Right. The caricature that gets portrayed, I have never experienced that in the healthcare field. And I don't know anyone who has. Mm -hmm. And I have worked with thousands of healthcare, with nurses, providers. I've never met this mythical person that gets put out there. I just haven't. And, and, you know, confirmation bias is real sample size being fairly small is real, but gosh, you know, I see what happened after I left Texas and moved to Utah. And I see the harm that some legislative bills caused. And I see the people who died or are now incapable of expanding their family when they want to. Because the difference between medical terms and what's in laws or what's in churches or how people understand those medical terms is so wide. It's such a huge gap. And there's actually a great provider on YouTube that I love who actually explains this really well. And her name is Danielle Jones. She's a board certified obstetrician and gynecologist she runs a youtube channel called mama dr jones um she is practiced in texas she's currently in new zealand right now i had the honor of working with her mother for a short time when i was in texas that's cool like she is very famous now and very like cool and that's great but, and she, you know, she's, she's very clear about what these definitions are and about that abortion doesn't mean what you think it means, you know, and the medications that we use for it, we use in all of the circumstances, not just in one. And so when things are illegal or, you know, when things are legislated, it's really important to have someone from the expert community be there to make sure that we can protect the health and safety of people who are pregnant Mm -hmm. because gosh, we already lose enough of those people. The USA is one of the highest maternal mortality or morbidity rates in the world. The Mm -hmm. only people who have higher are third world countries. 
And so we already see that enough for our sanity, if for nothing else, please, please, please have an expert there at the table. Have someone who does this on a daily basis. If they don't, they have no place being there. You need experts to really make sure that people get access to the care they need. And I understand that there's a lot of emotion around this. Of course there is. This is about, you know, life and death. Of Mm -hmm. course there's going to be emotion around it. I feel very similarly, you know, as I've done end of life care for people. Mm -hmm. And I have been honored to do end of life care for people. And during end of life care, we talk about what is the quality of life this person has? How much quantity of life can we give them at a decent quality that they would want? Mm -hmm. What are they willing to live with versus what they wouldn't want to live with? And if we can make those decisions at those moments and that's ethical and that's okay and it's totally okay to remove life support why is the womb so different and i i would argue and this is the this is my argument this you know this is just becca speaking i would argue it isn't different and those decisions can only be made in the family right well and that makes a lot of sense and i think you know this whole topic is so it's so heartbreaking and so difficult to even wrap your head around. Oh. If you are somebody who has any ounce of empathy, you know, for the patient, for the pregnant person. Um, no, I've watched, I've watched um, brand new infants who have terminal cancer be born. Oh, that's awful. Yeah. They yeah. die. And we talk to them about the same things we talk to you about grandma and grandpa. What is their life expectancy? What is the quality of life? What do you want out of this time? It's the same conversation. It's the same humanity. And it applies there too. Mm-hmm. And to think that it doesn't and to think that it's, oh, it's just happy, chubby, healthy babies. It's not. It's not. I wish it was. And mm-hmm. it's you know, and most of them are, and those, oh, those happy birthday parties that I have gotten to attend, they, they live with me. Like every once in a while, I'll, you know, a patient will have given me a picture or a note and oh my goodness, if I could save one thing from my home, were it burning down, those would, that little box, it is what I would say. That's amazing. <laughs> That's so sweet. It is. Um, um, so, you know, wait, <laughs> if you want to get to a nurse's heart that mm, I'm, I'm giving it now. Um, so just, just know that the word abortion, yes, we are going to have to use it and we are going to use words like elective, induced, you know, medical medication. And mm-hmm. it doesn't mean what you think it means. And if you have questions around it, please, please, please ask us so that we can explain. And especially here in Utah, people are so scared of those words. They are so Mm -hmm. like, oh, that's wrong and bad. And it's complicated. And gosh, I get it. And so please, please, please just know what you know and know what you don't know. Which is so hard because I mean, with, with a really tricky political, you know, conversation like abortion, like 
people think that they know. Like what you were talking about before about like how when you've done a little bit of research, you think you know everything, but you know, they're informed by whatever people that they talk to or their news sources or whatever. And they fully, you know, they are fighting a righteous cause. Like they are fighting this idea that people are giving birth to viable live babies and chopping them up and selling them to China Mm-hmm. And they believe it. And you know what? If that mm-hmm. is what was going on, we would be fighting it. I would be fighting it. Like, would be fighting it. Could you imagine? Like, you may, you know, your your listeners and you probably never knew a nurse who works in that space before. You've probably you met them for like, you know, when you gave birth, but you weren't asking them about their other experience. You weren't talking with them. We are so careful about talking about our experiences because one, our privacy of our patients comes first for Mm -hmm. any ethical nurse or doctor or provider. The privacy of our patients always needs to come first, but gosh, how then do we explain what we see? And so I'm very careful. I change details and I change locations and I, make it so that the story is true. This is a thing that happens without ever compromising my patient's privacy. Because again, it's nobody else's business. You know, they came in addicted to crack. Cool. Nobody's business, but mine and how I care for Mm -hmm. them. No, you know, and there are laws I have to follow and things I have to do. And, and so I do that. But other than that, you know, if, if I know you and you are my next door neighbor and I care for you, no one's ever going to know that I cared for you. No one's even going to know I ever saw you unless you bring it up. Mm-hmm. Never going to happen. And that's, that's why when I say, you know, that relationship, that health interaction, that birthing space, that is sacred. And that's what I mean by that. I use it in a very LDS way. Sacred doesn't mean secret, but Mm -hmm. it means that, you know, I am very ethically minded about what happens there and how I come into that space. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, you know, I can understand why it can be so hard to talk about a lot of these things. Um, For for anyone who's listened to, you know, my podcast in the past or whatever, we, we talk about how much shame is involved with anything to do with like your body parts within Mormonism and like I myself like in my own history as a teenager like I felt like like I couldn't wash myself in the shower properly because I was afraid of touching myself because I had been through all the shame and all that from having to go through the repentance process at the age of 13, you know, having to confess to the bishop. And, you know, I can understand how, like, especially uh, a women's health situation, if you've got something going on in these sacred private parts that you don't know the name of, and you're not supposed to touch, you are not supposed to take a mirror down there and check it out. Like, like it can be, there can be a lot of anxiety talking about those things and shame. And even like when the doctor asks, could you be pregnant? You know, like before you go get like a a MRI or an X-ray or anything, like they have to 
they have to know if you could be pregnant. And that doesn't mean that they're questioning your morality. They have to know. Yeah. We promise like healthcare people are some of the least judgmental people you will find. Generally speaking, I've probably seen everything, right? Oh my goodness. mm -hmm. And if we haven't seen it, we will, uh, ask for your permission. We'll cut it off. We'll sell it to science and we'll all be millionaires. Like that (laughs) joke that I, you know, someone once told me, I think in high school and I just, I've kind of run with it because I think it's hilarious as I'm neurodivergent. Um, but it's, it's very true. You know, you know, people are worried about, Oh, well I had explosive diarrhea. Oh wait, that was TMI. I'm like, there is no such thing as TMI. There just isn't. It is a very rare day when someone says something that I haven't heard before. It is very rare. And even then, you're not going to get a lot of surprise. You might get a little surprise, but you're going to get a very quick, okay, I know what, you know, I know what to do with the next step because, you know, that's all part of the training that we receive. And so, you know, I mean, humans are weird and do crazy things with their genitals and so there's not a lot that we haven't seen in healthcare. sometimes new trends happen but typically not and we don't get upset about a lot of things outside of things being done to people without consent and that Oh, we get real mad about that. We, they, oh. as you should, like, there should not be non-consensual, Ever. even things like you've heard in the news and things in the past about like doctors, uh, forcing women to do a cesarean section against their will yep, and things like, I mean, there, there are abuses that can happen oh, and, and it's and- awful. That kind of paternalistic view was very prevalent in the women's health spaces and the gender health spaces. Yeah. Oh, super common and something that still is very much real in different areas of the country and, you know, with different providers and something that I, as a nurse, have uh, definitely gone the rounds sometimes with with, with, with providers or with systems about, um, no, that is not the way we handle this. Well, but the baby will die. Yeah. But they get to choose that, Mm -hmm. but the patient will die. Yeah. They get to choose that. They don't want a blood transfusion. We cannot give it, but they'll die. Doesn't matter. They are choosing that. They are informed. If you have fully informed someone of the consequences, the likely medical outcomes of what they're choosing, and they choose it anyway, then it is ours to sit back to, you know, make sure that they understand, make sure that there is no confusion about the choice and then care for them in that choice. And Mm -hmm. that is a very, I mean, it's not new and it shouldn't be new, but it is something that has been focused on in a way in the last 10 years that I, you know, wasn't before. And I love that. And I, you know, but yeah, is it leading to a higher bad pregnancy outcomes? Yep. Yep. It is. Um, You know, we give parents the choice whether or not to give a newborn baby the vitamin K shot and people are refusing and babies are dying because of it. Mm, That's awful. 
Well, they hear conspiracy theories about, well, it has a black box warning. Yeah, it does um, for its other use because vitamin K is the antidote to warfarin. And that's why it has a black box warning. No baby has ever died from the vitamin K shot ever. Not once. We've been giving it for a long time. It's never happened. Mm -hmm. And there once... (laughs) There is one case of a baby having an allergic reaction possibly to the vitamin K shop in, shot in Turkey, but another vaccine was given at the same time. And so there's no way to know which one caused it. And the baby survived and was healthy. Because Well, was- right. And that's an allergic reaction. That's, that's not like the shot, yeah. you know, that's a different thing. Yeah. Um, there's a great nurse on TikTok who is very evidence-based. I really like how she addresses things. Her name is Jen Hamilton. And she goes into detail about all of the research about vitamin K and all of the misinformation around vitamin K. And I love it. And, you know, there, and she bases it all and she cites her sources and she's like, don't believe me. Do not listen to me. I am some rando on the internet. You want to know what the facts are. You go talk to your trusted healthcare provider. This is just to, you know, know what you don't know. Don't Mm -hmm. trust people on the internet with your healthcare decisions. Please don't trust me on your health decisions. Please, please don't. Yeah. Yeah. There's so much garbage going on out there. And it's funny because like I put out TikTok videos. I love TikTok. TikTok, is, oh my goodness, for those of us who are neurodivergent, TikTok is the best thing in the world. And well, it's super it's fun. The worst thing in the world. But the thing is, is like, like I'm an evidence-based coach. I read studies. I have a pile of certifications. I have a lot of knowledge. But you know what? When I'm creating content, it is a lot of trouble to cite my sources. And it's a huge pain in the ass. And so I usually just don't. And I usually just get on there and talk. Yeah. Like, you know, if I'm going to cite sources and stuff, it'll be here on the podcast. I've got show notes. I'm actually writing the thing out, you know, but like, I understand like by my own values in consuming TikTok health content, yeah. I wouldn't be watching my own TikToks because I, like, I don't cite my yeah. sources. I like link trees for that. I think those are great. Yeah, but you're not allowed to even have a website posted on your TikTok account unless you have over a thousand followers or if you're on the business account. And every time I try to do the business account, it throttles my views. It's because it wants you to buy it. Yeah, it it wants you to sell something. Yeah, it. I mean, there's problems with every platform, but yeah. So, you know, once you can, I highly recommend that. But yeah, you know, I... Gosh, my TikTok feed is filled with experts. I there's a virologist that I follow, an epidemiologist that I follow. I love it. A random family doc, a Jen Hamilton. She she is one of my favorite nurses on there. Like my TikTok is filled with ridiculous science nerds, which is great. I love that. They, of course, it's going to feed me whatever I want, and I want more of that. And apparently recipes, some and and book recommendations. Somehow I got on that side of TikTok. I mean, it's amusing, but yeah, 
That's so funny. No, I, 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 they, they started giving me a whole bunch of stuff that I didn't care for, like, because I'm looking at a lot of like the health coaching and the weight loss and that kind of stuff. That gets real problematic, real, right. I see a lot of people selling supplements and the problem with supplements in the U S is they are completely unregulated. And it's Mm -hmm. not until supplements have been sold and people have been hurt. And then those people sue and then they test the supplements to make sure that they are what they say they are in the label. And guess what? Most of the time they're not. Right. So, you know, that's, that's one of the really like hairy things in like the coaching world is because you don't need to have licenses and you don't even need to have certifications to be a coach. And while I am an evidence-based coach and I do have a pile of certifications, there are some very, very successful quote unquote coaches who are kind of more just like salespeople. Yeah, they're salespeople. And they're going to go up and down the grocery aisle, demonizing every single product that's sold at the grocery store, telling you, you know, this is going to kill you. You know, this, you know, this very minor preservative that's been proven by the FDA over and over and over again, Mm -hmm. that it's fine. And like, everything's going to kill you, but you should buy our very expensive. Yes. Yes. Oh, and our, our, processed like special protein bar or our special blend protein powder or whatever like you shouldn't eat processed foods because processed foods are going to kill you but buy ours yes from us ours are special and and they're great (laughs) and they're unique and we are special and unique and you can have special insider knowledge that you can't get anywhere else through us Uh and right as people who were baked in the soup of Mormonism of the LDS church. Mm-hmm. Gosh, that's really appealing. Cause that's what we hear at church. We mm-hmm. have special knowledge and we have special insight. And, and so when we're looking for other experts, a lot of times that's what we look for and it's problematic and it leads mm-hmm. to some really, you know, there's a reason why MLMs are so popular. Yeah you know, and, and gosh, I just, I really worry about supplements because of that, because they are not regulated at all. Now in Canada, they are, and in the European union, they are very much. And Mm -hmm. so I like a lot of the research out of there. And I've looked at a lot of the research out of the UK for that, um, as I'm trying to make decisions for myself and my family about what we bring into our, you know, into our health journeys and, and what we leave out. And so I've gone to places that require evidence base and that's not the USA, unfortunately. And that's sad to me. And I, I would love for that to change and I doubt it ever will. And so looking to other like first world countries for that kind of information can be really, really helpful when you're looking into supplements. And that does not mean that MLMs can't get there too. I don't know exactly how they get around some of the regulations. I just know that other places are much more regulated. And I, you know, if something can't be sold in Canada or the UK, that should really tell you something about that product. Mm-hmm. So please, please be careful, you know, and just because something can be sold somewhere that still doesn't mean that it's safe and natural doesn't mean safe. Right. 
cyanide is incredibly a hundred percent. It is natural. It is organic and it will kill. You. <laughs> well, uh, the most deadly substance on earth is water. <laughs> no, water love- kills more people than anything. Yeah. Well, so I love it because, you know, every time I hear, oh, this blah, blah, blah will, you know, it's used in rocket fuel and it's blah, blah, blah. You know, you hear all these claims about why you shouldn't eat certain things because you find it in rocket fuel. Water, also found in rocket fuel. Um, Mm -hmm. There's a saying that is used in medicine that I find to be really helpful. Poison is in the dose. Yeah, I've heard that before. Or the 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 dose makes the poison. Yeah. We it, we use things that absolutely can kill you in, in, in medicine all the time. All the time. And we don't think twice about it. Because mm-hmm. we know where it comes from, what dose we can control the dose, because that's all regulated. And because we have that knowledge, we have that experience, we can administer it safely, get you healthy and move forward. But like warfarin is a great example of something that absolutely can kill you. Absolutely. And what, what is warfarin? What does it do? So, so it's a blood thinner. It's an older blood thinner. It was okay. originally used to kill mice and rats. So it's rat hmm. poison. Oh, it's kind of like for your heart, how people yeah. take... Um... Oh, what is it? People, uh, it that explodes that's in TNT and dynamite. Oh yeah, yeah. Um, um, nitroglycerin. Nitroglycerin. Yeah. And I, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> right. So it, you know, that it all makes sense. But you know, um, like a lot of my nutrition training, we talked about how, you know, you've got preservatives and you've got like artificial colors and pesticides and all these things, and like how to actually tell if you need to be worried about any of that. And it turns out that like the amount of those substances that we find in our food system are actually fine. And you're in much more danger of things like your macronutrient ratios and your overall caloric, you know, or, or like, I mean, should you be eating vegetables that have had Roundup on them? No, please don't. But there's no Roundup left over on the vegetables by the time they get into the grocery store. Like yes. they, well, they treat the soil so early in the growing process. It's gone. Well, and mass marketed farms don't use Roundup. Roundup is what people use in their backyard farms. Right. So, <laughs> and and it's this crazy thing too, because- you know, there, there are a lot of naturopaths and people who are like, yeah, you should only have organics and stuff. It, this, this could be like a whole podcast on oh, its own, for but sure. like, for sure. you know, yes, pesticides and herbicides and things do make people sick. They absolutely do. There right. are plenty of documented cases of people getting sick from pesticides and herbicides. However, those people either worked in the factory or they were a farmer who was not handling the chemical with the proper precautions or Um, they were a backyard gardener who got exposed at home and that that honestly that's what I've seen the most um I did a brief rotation in the ER and I absolutely saw that in Texas mm -hmm. we had someone come in who you know Texas there's some there's decent land around a lot of the houses and people grow gardens and yeah wouldn't you know it well and that's you know 
people with their own garden, they're not going to put the gloves on and they're not going to put the goggles on and like, well, oh, I'm the just gardening. It's my garden and it's just round up. It's sold at the Home Depot, right? right. So just <laughs> like, it's in the dose. Please, you know, don't, the first Google result is probably not the best unless you've trained your mm. Google algorithm to give you the scholarly articles first, which you can do. To start off, you know, use Google Scholar. That's a great way to actually get mm-hmm. to peer-reviewed articles. And peer review is important. It, peer review does not remove all the bias and all of the nuance from your health information. But it does help separate that from the stuff that's like paid for by the corporation or... Peer review helps because at least you can, you know, in the peer review process, you have to disclose who paid for this, what your associations are, are you making any money? And Mm -hmm. if nothing else, that's a step above, you know, your TikTok influencer who legally, do they have to say that? Yes. Do they? No. And a lot of them have been getting in trouble in the last couple of years because they have not been honest and transparent about their financial relationship to the thing that they're peddling. Yeah, that's, you know, it's so dishonest. So just, you know, lots, lots of things. The other thing that, um, gosh, completely different subject. Um, there is a unique issue that I've seen in Utah that I did not see as much in Texas that just is interesting. And I wonder how much it has to do with the culture around you know mormonism around uh, around the lds faith and it's all about vaginal mucus vaginal secretions gosh people have a lot of questions yeah and you you're not allowed to talk about it well like you're not allowed to talk about your like if you are in mormonism you're not allowed to talk about your parts with other people or like you're not supposed to and i so i grew up a little different I I spent my first 12 years um, wintering in Seattle and then summering in a remote area of Alaska at a fish cannery. And, you know, I'm the daughter of a women's health nurse at someone who specialized in, in gender care and the granddaughter of someone who specialized in gender care. And so I had access to a lot more teaching and information than most people in my generation or my age, even most people at those same ages now. And so I didn't have a lot of questions, but gosh, as I've been raising children and giving them that same access to information, gosh, there has been a lot of pushback from other families near us about the matter of fact way I speak about things, or even the matter of fact way my children speak about things. Mm-hmm. Because, well, you can't talk about that. Well, why? Why right. can't? Well, it the, like the name, you know, penis and vagina were a bad word. <laughs> you, you, it was, it was PP or wiener, which I, I just think it's so funny that like wiener is more <laughs> acceptable than penis. Wiener is the funnest word in the entire universe. Oh, for sure. And that's more appropriate than penis. (laughs) And I think part of me gets surprised because I was not raised that way. I was Mm -hmm. raised baked in 
to this. We don't need to talk to the men about it, but here amongst us women, like totally you can talk about whatever. And I loved that, but gosh, that is definitely not the culture that I'm now caring for. And Mm -hmm. so I try not to go too radical with, of course, you can talk about anything to anyone because frankly, most of my patients couldn't, they cannot make that jump. That is too big of a leap. Mm -hmm. And so I really try to do that. It's us women here. This is us just talking about our things. This is a safe space. Yeah. And, and I found that to be very helpful because they don't know their moms didn't talk about their vaginal secretions. I mean, did I? Yes, absolutely. I did. But gosh, uh, I'm not a typical mother. Mm -hmm. And I, the older my kids get, the more I've realized, oh, wow. You know, when they were growing up, I used anatomical terms. I taught them all the terms for all the different parts as you know, before they got into school, as they've asked questions, I will answer, I answered them age appropriate, but incredibly honestly, storks were never talked about in my home. Mm-hmm. Euphemisms were not made in my home. Mm-hmm. And what the research tells us is that comprehensive evidence-based teaching on these subjects protects children from predators. Which totally makes sense. Children who know the right words, who understand consent and privacy are predator repellents. But children who don't have the words, who have shame and embarrassment around it, oh, predators like them a lot because they won't get caught. And Mm -hmm. the best way to protect our children is through this transparent. And is it uncomfortable? Of course it is. Of course it is, especially with the culture. Of course it's uncomfortable. Do it anyway, because Mm -hmm. your children's safety is more important than your discomfort. Right. And that it makes it, it's really tough coming out of a culture like Mormonism. And especially if you yourself have been through some of the shame, you know, surrounding. Oh, for sure. For sure. But before I transitioned more away um, from the church. I'm still a member in good standing. Um, do, you, do you still attend much? No, I didn't. Um, COVID shut that down for our family um, for a lot of reasons. And mm-hmm. we have not returned. But even before then, there were certain teachings that I was not willing to teach my children nor allow my children to be taught. And one of them was around masturbation. I was Mm -hmm. not going to shame and place moral judgment on something that we know for a fact is a normal part of human development. Mm -hmm. And I was like, no, because when it was shamed in me, it made it worse. And when it was shamed in most people in my generation, it made it worse. It just made us do it more, not less. And I'm like, well, that didn't work. Right. Well, and then you can't talk about it and you can't talk about you like to the extent of once you are finally getting married, right. You can't talk about it once you're married and then you can have some really strange things happening in your marriage dynamic. If you haven't been able to talk about anything sex related before you got married. Right. 
and you end up with these two people who've already formed all of these associations and all of these things who are now completely incompatible because they didn't talk about it. And so mm-hmm. I was very bold in saying this, no, I'm going to go with what research tells me is going to lead to them being the most sexually healthy and having the best chance at having a healthy, successful sex life as adults. And if that means they're going to sin, oh, well, I guess that's my fault for not teaching them. And I'll just, I'll deal with it in the afterlife and fine. Mm -hmm. And like, that's where I went with it. Cause I'm like, no, it didn't work. And because I'm neurodivergent, I don't do things that don't work like that. I, you know, when something obviously doesn't work, why would I keep doing it? Mm -hmm. But that, you know, that is directly informed by my neurodivergence. I can see a neurotypical person being like, well, it didn't work for me, but that's because I'm bad. Right. And for me, it was like, "Mm, it didn't work for anyone because I was the one that everyone talked to anyway, even when I was a teenager, even when I was a young adult. So I knew most people were lying to their bishops. And that's what it sounds like. Yeah. And a lot of the research supports that. And there's a very big difference between masturbation and use of porn. I'm so glad you brought up this topic. Let's, let's make this the final big topic. And then we'll talk about your resources. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So let's talk about what is the difference between masturbation and porn? Well, so as, uh, I like to joke with my husband, they definitely go hand in hand. Um, <laughs> That's terrible. <laughs> I, and I want to start off by saying that I don't think that porn is essentially bad. Okay. Mm-hmm. And I know that the church teaches something very, very different. And I understand why there should be caution around it. Mm -hmm. And so, and there's actually quite a huge corpus of research about this, which is really kind of fun for me as someone who loves science so much because I have gotten to dig into the research and I've gotten to talk with people who are experts. And here's what we know. Humans masturbate in the womb. So how can it be so wrong if an innocent fetus is masturbating? And if an innocent fetus is masturbating, why not an innocent adult? How, how, or a teenager, someone Mm -hmm. who is age appropriately exploring their sexuality. And to know about what those age appropriate boundaries are, go find an expert, go talk to like the American Academy of Pediatrics has some statements about this. They have a lot of resources for providers about when to suspect that something has happened to a kid and when to know that this is normal sexual maturation and development and development of a sexual identity. And so, and those are two different things and there are clues and there are you know, there are markers along the way that make it pretty clear, you know, generally speaking, which one's happening. And the American Academy of Pediatrics, after reviewing all the literature about masturbation, has found that not only is it safe, it is healthy. They find that people who masturbate have lower anxiety, have a general feeling of wellness more often, 
um, it actually helps prevent prostate cancer in men. Mm -hmm. um, generally speaking, this is a really good thing. Women who masturbate generally have better pelvic health. They generally have less stress incontinence post childbirth, that kind of thing. So, you know, I have yet to see a negative impact from masturbation alone. Outside so, of the shame that yes. maybe had been brought imposed brought by, in from the church. Right. That the problem isn't the masturbation. The problem is the shame. Right. And that leads to mental health issues. And that that's complicated. And you absolutely deserve to speak with a professional therapist who has not signed any contracts with the church. <laughs> right. Yep. Who can educate you on what the research shows. Now, pornography is another thing. Pornography is adult entertainment. It is sexually flavored adult entertainment. And it you know, and people say, oh, it comes in all the different flavors. And it does. The pornography that research has found to be the most difficult and the most, I don't know if I would say harmful, but the most risky mm -hmm. is videos, is pictures, videos, real people on the internet. Is or, that just because it hooks you in more or what? Um, it triggers the reward centers of the brain without any kind of buildup. So it's a quick dopamine oxytocin payout without the buildup of getting to know these people or characters. Oh, interesting. What I found is that literary pornography or smut as it's being called these days actually has the opposite effect and causes people to be more empathetic and more likely to seek consent and practice safer forms of intimacy. Yeah. I, I mean, I can definitely see that. And, you know, it's, it's becoming a problem now with like teenagers growing up and they're, they're wow. exposed to porn very young. Everybody's got their phones and they're learning that like normal sexual behavior is like, porn. if you're and alone with it, you're alone with someone in an elevator for 30 seconds, then that's the expected behavior. Right. Or, right. or where, worse. Right. Where it's centered on male gratification. It's very male centric, you know, and is there ethical porn out there that doesn't look like that? Absolutely. There is. There mm -hmm. absolutely is. There are some wonderful female directors, actors, female led studios where, you know, now, are there other societal issues we could talk about, about, you know, they feel like that's their best value and gosh, we should probably value them for something else more. And how ethical is that? Sure. We can have that mm -hmm. conversation. And I, you know, I'm happy to, but at the same time, we need to be very careful about saying, oh, porn is bad and it will make you dehumanize people. Yeah. Some forms will. And that's why it's adult entertainment. It's about knowing that this is fantasy, that it is not real. It is not mm -hmm. a sex education. It is not teaching you anything about how real people in real life have sex. Right. And so yeah. as long as you are able to hold that in your mind, it tends to not be harmful. It tends to just be like anything else. And because it goes directly to those reward pathways in your brain, hijack things can it become overwhelming can it you know it impact your relationships and your job sure 
we've seen that too. But let's be very clear and be very careful when we talk about porn addiction. Let's be very careful mm -hmm. if you are not a therapist, if you are not trained, if you do not have a license to make that clinical diagnosis and to work with that kind of patient population, you shouldn't be talking about it. You shouldn't be, that's not your place. Well, the, and this becomes an issue like in the church where bishops are diagnosing people yep. for porn addiction and then sending them off to treatment to like their AA program for porn Which addicts. Is not run by licensed professionals. Well, and where many of the people in that class don't have anything similar yeah. to what would be considered an addiction in the first place. And those who do are kind of being deprived of the opportunity to go get actual help because they're doing the church's program instead because the bishop told them to. Yes. And so please be very careful. Seek out someone who has specific training. Now in the U.S., the DSM does not classify, does not have any classification for a porn addiction. It doesn't exist. In other countries, they do. Mm -hmm. But in the U.S., we don't. It is not a recognized addiction in the U.S. And so a ethical, licensed, not someone who has not signed a an agreement with the church can tell you, you know, can help guide you through that because it's not a moral issue necessarily. Is it an ethical issue? Yeah. And it's something you should explore about, you know, what do I know about these people? Because are those real people? Yeah, mm -hmm. there are. And if you aren't seeing that, then you are not seeing the whole picture and maybe stepping away from that one form would be really good for you. Right. While you work through the ethics of it. Is it a moral failing? I don't know. I, I, you know, I am not competent to speak on spiritual moral issues, but gosh, here's what I know. People who have problems get better with competent, licensed professional help. And people who don't have issues then find out they don't have issues and can go on their merry way, living full sexual adult lives that they deserve to get to live. And there's no one right way to have sex and there's no one right way to be. And I know you've been told from the church that there is, but there isn't. I mean, at one point, oral sex was considered a sin. Right. That's still, that's still kind of floated around. I've heard depending, it. Depending on the circles you go in, but oh. the, I mean, that's, that's something that we were told. Yeah. I know people who believe that having sex with your garments off and not through the garment of the holy priesthood is wrong. Yeah. There's so, all kinds of stuff floating around out there. Really look at where you're getting your information from. Is this information helpful to you? Is it making you a happier, healthier, more well-rounded person who can live in your own body and in your own skin? Great. Cool. And if you have questions, seek out licensed professional people who can help you think through it. They're not going to tell you what to believe. That would be unethical. They know, I mean, might there be some therapists who do that? Sure. Don't again, like doctors, are there some bad ones? Yes. Don't go to them. You get right. to choose. Right. And that's, that all go. It all ties into like your body autonomy that, you know, external sources to yourself should not be making decisions no. for how you feel about things. 
yeah. or how what decisions you make for your own body that don't affect other people. Yeah. You know? it, and for the church to be telling you that you are not allowed to, you know, explore your sexuality is ridiculous. You know, it's harmful. Yes, absolutely. That this is why there are so many married people in sexless marriages or in unhappy sex marriages where you know because you're not allowed to talk about it and if you talk about it with your spouse like I mean some of the marriage relation classes that I'm seeing coming out in the last 10 years in the church have been better where they ask you to talk about these things before marriage great but they also caution you but don't talk about it too much or you're going to be tempted bullshit of course (laughs) you're going to be tempted of course you should be making out with your person before you get married (laughs) right (laughs) are you kidding this is ridiculous oh no I have I have thoughts about even just the wisdom of having people getting married as virgins those are my own personal opinions I, I don't know again yeah I I have thoughts about that I don't know that anyone needs to have p and v sex before they get married if that's not according to their own personal autonomy and their ethics but p and v sex is not the only kind of sex that's not the standard and anyone who says it is, is just uh, not having nearly as much fun as they should be. Right. But as, it, a, result, as a consent as, as it was taught to me, though, that is the one and only but acceptable that, way. But that's how you end up with BYU Idaho students. That, that was me. Yep. Doing anal sex and thinking it's not sex. And then not using it and having... Or the BYU outbreak of crabs in armpits because that's not sex. Uh, <laughs> that's I shouldn't be laughing at this because it's terrible, but at the same time, it, it seems inevitable though. That it like it seems inevitable because you have people who are not allowed to talk about their bodies, they're not allowed to talk about sex. So they have no idea what a healthy sexual relationship looks like because they're sneaking around doing this in secret where their bishop won't find out and then they won't get kicked out of school. Yes. And that's ridiculous. Which which is bad for their health. Yes. And leads to, I mean, Utah has a very high teen pregnancy rate. Very, very high. And in my work, I care for those patients. So you see them every day. Breaks my heart. Every single time I see someone under 18 and I have had patients as young as 12, Oh, which is illegal. Right. Well, and then it makes you wonder, like, did it happen because they just didn't know or was there something going on? You know, were they raped? Were there bad things like that? Or did they just have a boyfriend and they just didn't know? And what all the research shows us is that if you do a comprehensive sexual education starting from infancy, lifespan wise, the onset of sexual activity is later and it's healthier and there's lower risk of pregnancy and STIs. Everything, all the research says that knowledge is power and it protects And so we have to talk about these things. We have to talk about the names and we have to talk about birth control and we have to talk about oral sex and anal sex and PNV sex. And we have to talk about all the things and soaking and 
I don't know if you've heard what that is. I, but didn't, I didn't find out what soaking was until like five years ago, maybe. Like we need to be talking and educating. And these are people who are very shortly going to be adults who we want to have sex and we want them to be happy and we want them having kids. So gosh, how about we educate them? Because mm-hmm. education is power, knowledge is power. And the church teaches that knowledge is power. And so why are we so afraid as a community to give knowledge? Why are we so scared of knowledge when we have been taught that knowledge is next to godhood? I think that honestly, I think it's the shame that it it's so closely tied well, to sin. And there have been different leaders of the church who felt different ways about knowledge and have wanted to restrict knowledge for different reasons. Mm-hmm. You know, it's complicated and you're in a double bind because you're told, well, knowledge is good and learning is good, but not about that. Like mm-hmm. we need to be very aware that, that, you know, we just need to be very aware. So speaking of knowledge, there is a great resource for parents about porn and masturbation and keeping your kids safe and I want to make sure that I talk about it. Sure. And it's a YouTube. It's real new. It is called Rethink Sex Ed. And it's by Christy Abel. And she is a school counselor. And she is a licensed and certified sex educator. And she has great resources. And I I really, I stumbled across her. And then for our whole lives from the universalist or Unitarian Universalist Mm -hmm. Church, another great resource. What's it called? Our whole lives? Our whole lives are OWL. Oh, okay. We're going to link all these up in the show notes. Perfect. And then if you have questions about, hey, is this vaginal discharge, you know, okay. Mama Dr. Jones has a whole YouTube video where she shows you she recreates it with food items, which I loved. I thought that was great, but it's, <laughs> that's, that's genius. right. And she puts <laughs> it on panties or a pad. So you can really see what that should look like. And when, you know, and it's just great educational content. And there's a phrase that she used that I'm totally stealing that says, if your vagina is sick, go see a doctor. Oh, that's so sweet. And I love it because it's not a moral failing to have something happen. The number of UTIs and bacterial vaginosis and just benign kind of issues that I see that get ignored because, oh, I can't go talk about that. No, go. Like We can take care of this and you don't have to see an OB-GYN for most of it. Most of this, your family practice provider, your nurse midwife, your nurse practitioner, family, you know, an urgent care clinic can take care of this. And you don't need to suffer with symptoms. You don't. Suffering is unnecessary for vulva havers and vagina havers. And if you're suffering, you know, a little bit of discomfort with having a vulva and vagina, totally normal, but pain is not normal. Discomfort's normal and discomfort varies, you know, a little painful, but true pain, moderate to severe pain is not normal. Please let us help you. There are so many things and there's, there's new research out about 
endometriosis and the possible causes for it. Like we may have, we may know what causes it in the next few years, which means we may be able to better treat it, which means we might have a cure for it. Like that's amazing. That is such a common pain yes. that oh, women have. Oh yeah. So please, please find someone you trust. Make sure they're a licensed professional. There are so many resources out there. There are great resources online about how to be healthy, you know, in this sexual reproductive lifespan space. And you deserve to live in your own body authentically and comfortably. I love that so much. That is such an important message. And I don't know why it is that, you know, many of us, like I'm 38 years old and these messages are new to me. I was incredibly lucky in, in a lot of ways in how I grew up and and, in what I was taught and almost a matriarchy really with, Mm -hmm. with the women around me. And I am grateful every, every day because it sheltered me from some of the worst impacts that happen with the culture of the church. And I'm very, very grateful for it. And I think it's why I went into the space that I did. At the same time, though, I am very cognizant that I am not the norm, that my lived experience is not the norm. And so many of us, we talk about this as nurses who who help these patients. We talk about it. We talk about how can we help them? How can we educate them? How can we make them feel more comfortable? And so if anyone who's listening to this has ideas, please let us know. If something is just off the table for you and you just cannot talk about it, tell us. We won't bring it up unless we like have to, have to, or we will mm-hmm. find a way. But gosh, so many people here in Utah, so many people within the church have had these horrible experiences, have been chained or hurt or abused. And you deserve to heal and you deserve to have power over your body and you deserve to live, like I said, comfortably in your own skin. And, Mm -hmm. you know, as nurses and doctors were one part, your, you know, counselors, licensed professional counselors and social workers are another part. And please heal because you deserve that. Everyone deserves to have that healing. Yeah. I love that. I would just, I would just second that, you know, your whole health really depends on you being able to acknowledge when something is wrong. And that can be one of the hardest steps is just identifying that something's up, but that you deserve to take that step and get the help that you need. If you've lived with something your whole life, you don't know that it's wrong. Exactly. Like I, that's why it's important to talk about stuff. Yeah. Well, that's why I recently just finally got medical care for metabolic disease And it's wild because I'm not hungry all the time anymore. I had Mm -hmm. no idea people aren't hungry all the time. I just thought that everyone was hungry all the time and that skinny people just, you know, starved themselves and felt awful all the time. And and being skinny wasn't worth that. Yeah. (laughs) I had no idea that most people aren't hungry 24 seven. And it's been really weird to have lived in that body and now live in this body that is less overweight effortlessly, Mm -hmm. you know, off of medication that's been around for 40 plus years. Yeah. Like it's amazing. Once you get, what's the word for it? Not holistic, uh, homeostasis. Yeah. Or once you get into homeostasis. 
yeah and and then kind of like your body knows what to do and things will start lining up for you but mine was a metabolic hormone imbalance the thing that everyone says oh what is it a hormone imbalance well yeah mine was and I used to think oh no I'm just lazy and I just you know blah 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 all the things that we hear and then when I finally just went I am a nurse I know better come on just go treat this just go and just you know what the evidence-based treatments are just go ask for them and I finally did and I wish I had done it 20 years ago but it took that much to identify that there was something up and to do something about it. Someone who is trained and knows better and grew Uh up, no barriers to care. So you are not alone. If you are in your forties and you're like, I know no words and I know none of the things. Okay, Mm -hmm. cool. I promise you as nurses, we're going to be like, yes, I get to teach you. Cool. We went into nursing because we love people. We went in because we love teaching. We went in because we love what we do. And yeah, we're really burned out and we're really tired. And most of us have PTSD, but those teaching moments, those where we get to share what we already love, those are the joy in our jobs. Those are the parts of our jobs that we're like, yes, this is why we come to work. It's the other things we don't like. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Well, on that note, um, I just want to thank you so much for coming and recording this podcast. There were so many things that I learned things in this episode. You are a wealth of knowledge. You're fun to chat with. You're fun to listen to. And I really think that the stuff that we talked about today is going to be beneficial to the people listening. So thank you so much for taking your time out to, to be on my podcast, Becca. Oh, you're welcome. It was so much fun. I, as you can tell, I love it. I love educating. I, mm, I am lucky in my role right now that I get to do a lot of patient education. And I, I love that in this role, you know, talking with you, I get to educate a lot more people a lot quicker and gosh, I really hope you go viral because I, the, the more people who hear about how to do health well and how to negotiate their faith or their recent faith or the faith they grew mm-hmm. up in, the, the better it's going to be for everyone. So I really appreciate what you are doing to help heal the community. Thank you. I, that means a lot to me. Like I have so much imposter syndrome about this. Part of me still feels like you're, you know, you're not supposed to talk about ex Mormon things. Like it's, it's sinful, but honestly, the thing is in my experience coaching and I mean, granted, like I'm a coach, I'm not a, I'm not a practitioner that we're working with weight loss and helping people, um, stay on their medical plan that their provider has given them and things like that. Like, but I have seen some of the greatest hurdles for ex Mormons to, to stay on top of their health is a lot of this stuff coming out of the church, the psychological stuff and the shame. And yeah, you absolutely. Know. That I have to be perfect. And if I'm not perfect, well, then what's the point in trying? Exactly. And if that is actively preventing people from having their best health, there needs to be resources out there for that. And this is it. Like, I don't know if you know this, Becca, but this is the only podcast. I think I'm the only coach who's doing health for ex-Mormons specifically thus far. I'm so excited about all of them learning their parts and getting to know their health and using resources and educating themselves on all the things that they missed out because- People were worried about it being sinful and mm-hmm. just getting to have the knowledge 
that I've been blessed with that I've gotten to have. And, and so I'm just, I'm so excited about it. Oh, this is awesome. Okay. Well, we'll close there. Thank you so much, Becca. I hope you have a great week. We'll see you later. That's it for this episode of Health Beyond Mormonism. If you enjoyed this episode, it would mean the world to me if you could hit subscribe, leave a review, and share it with someone you love. Search, ponder, and pray about what you learned today. Come find me on Instagram, Facebook, TikTok, and return and report. We'll see you guys next time.